other's gang Two sisters, both curious and strange A likely duo and they witty from the brain It's the magic hour, Mercedes and Jay Hey you guys, so I've been attending something called Mountain Film in Telluride, Colorado for a while now. This was my fifth year and it is one of my favorite experiences every single year. It re-energizes my soul and I'm surrounded by indomitable spirits that just make me feel so alive and encourage me to raise the bar in my own life. One of my dreams when we started this podcast was to take Mercedes there for her first time and to record a couple episodes there. And so I am so stoked and so honored because we were actually the first ones to ever be allowed to do that, the first podcast. And so I'm so thankful to Lucy and to Mountain Film. The talks that we recorded are amazing and we did it four times. So this is the first episode of the four that you'll be able to listen to. It is featuring Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things. Tiny Beautiful Things is one of my favorite books. You've got to pick it up. Uh, it also features her husband, Brian Lindstrom, and then two amazing activists who live in Nepal who have dedicated their life to charity work there, Ben Ayers and Maggie Duane, and their story is incredible. The host of this episode and of this talk is Tom Shadiak, who we're so honored to have on here again. He was, I believe, episode 10. If you haven't heard his episode, it's our favorite. Go listen to it. And the, the talk is basically about equity in Nepal. That was the theme of Mountain Film this year was, was equity. So this is equity work in Nepal. And it's basically, how do you approach charity work with cultural awareness? However, even if you're not doing charity work out of the country and you're not that interested in cultural awareness, this is a very heart opening conversation. And it was just a blessing to be in. And, you know, our whole goal in this show is to be a light. We realize that it's not easy to be able to make it out to Mountain Film or to be able to make it out to Tell Your Ride, period and how blessed we were to be able to do this. We wanted to provide this for you guys to be able to get a taste of it and be able to listen to this and enjoy this light in the comfort of your own home. And so we're so happy to be able to provide that, to be a tool in that. We hope you enjoy it. We cannot wait to be back next year and do this again. We love you guys so much. Don't forget to be a light. Good morning, everybody. Morning. How has it been? How has your mountain film experience been amazing, right? Yeah. Um, we have the guest director with us today. Oh, I guess that's me. <laughs> um, Hello. But first of all, let's thank Cheryl. You guys have been knocking it out of the park. So I don't know if you guys were at the symposium, but I've sworn off symposiums uh, for years because of the word symposium. Uh, and uh, yesterday's was so soulful and so brilliant, and I think that's because of the energy that you and Suzanne and Sage are bringing. So let's thank Cheryl. It's, it's really all them. What's that? It's really all them. Lucy and Robin and Suzanne and Sage, all that whole crew, amazing. Yeah, I have a feeling you have something to do with it. But it, it really is. Guys, we have given the festival over to this new wave of feminine energy, and it's been just amazing. I've been coming for 17 years, and it's been beautiful, all 17, but these last two have really just kicked it up a notch, so thank you for what you're doing. Um, we have an impossible panel, um, because each of these uh, folks we could spend a day with, 
Um, you all know Cheryl, so she needs no introduction, and will actually get no introduction. <laughs> this is Brian Lynchham, her husband, um, amazing filmmaker. Um, I, I, I'm sure you've seen his work since it's been featured here at the festival, and you guys have a new film. I don't know if it's played yet. It, it, called, it played yesterday. yesterday. It played yesterday. Has anyone, did anyone see the film? Okay, a few of you. Um, Brian? It's called We Are Forbidden. Give him a quick... Uh, well, it, besides being Cheryl Strait's directorial debut. Woo! Oh. Co directorial debut. Can I say on behalf of all directors, stay the hell out of our world? <laughs> yeah, I, I, think her, I think her next endeavor is going to be a vanity album. I think covers. It's a, a eight minute film that um, examines menstrual stigma in Nepal through the lens of young women in Sirket. Where Maggie Joyne lives. Yeah, you might as well introduce Maggie since you guys know each other. This woman, I spent, I get to spend the morning with these amazing souls as I'm doing my research. And, and this is, I, I, I mean, forgive me, Mother Teresa is what I may call you. She's just a brilliant light. Um, we're storytellers. They're the story. So I think we're going to sort of like defer to, this is Ben Ayers and Maggie. But why don't you go ahead and introduce Maggie? Yeah, I, I was going to, so Brian and I, we, we made a, a short film in Nepal, but really it's Ben and Maggie who are going to do most of the talking here today because they are doing a really deeply important equity work in Nepal. And how it came to pass that we made our film, We Are Forbidden, is that Maggie, we, we all, we, Brian and I met Maggie several years ago, really immediately knew that she was an important, amazing person and we wanted to be her friend. So our family just quickly absorbed her. And a couple of years ago, when we were traveling, we went on a trip around the world. We took our kids out of school and traveled around the world. And we knew that we had to go to Sirket to see Maggie. It was quite a journey. I kept I kept scouring all the guidebooks, looking for one to mention the city of Sirket, and none did. And I'm like, wait a minute, Lonely Planet. Like nobody. I was like, where are we going? And we went to Maggie's children's home, um, and I'm going to ask her to tell her story, but essentially she has founded a children's home um, where kids who have been orphaned have been taken in uh, by Maggie and the, the people who work for the Coppola Valley Children's Home, um, and also she built a school that educates about 500 kids, and she has a women's clinic and a center and a safe home for teen girls, and she's really built a whole empire of care and compassion and kindness in Sirkat. And so when we went there for the first time, all our whole family was moved, and we returned the, the next year and worked with um, some girls who go to Maggie's school um, to make our movie. Um, but I think, Maggie, you would do a better job explaining the complicated way you came to found the school. Can you do that? Sure thing. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm 32 now, but I landed in Nepal when I was 19. And if you could have known me then, I think you would have seen a very... I'm from New Jersey, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have the best reputation always as Jersey girls. <laughs> so I grew up in suburbia on a cul-de-sac with a trampoline in my backyard. I went to New Jersey public school. I played soccer. Um, I have a mom and a dad and two sisters. And everything, I think you could use the word privilege for sure, not wealth, but privilege, just being a white suburban girl and 
college was just stamped on my forehead when we're bred to go to school and become successful and get a scholarship and take out loans and go to college, 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 and it has to be a big name and get good SAT scores. And um, I just woke up one morning when I was 18 and thought, like, I know nothing about who I am on the inside. Like, who am I? What am I going to do here? What's my purpose? And that led me to travel and to immerse myself in some places around the world. And just people often think that I put a pin on a map and was like, I'm going to go help children. And it's just so far from the story. It was a hundred different crossroads and one thing leading to another. But ultimately, I ended up in northeastern India working with refugee children and being shocked and questioning everything that our human family stood for. And I was at a crossroads on a dry riverbed one day when I was 19 years old in Nepal. And I saw about a few dozen children breaking rocks. And they were had their mallets, and they were three and four and five years old. And they were just click, click, clicking, breaking rocks all day, every single day, morning till night. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And there was this one little girl, and her name was Hima, and she said, Namaste, Didi. And um, that was the moment where I was like, I'm not going to go back. And I found a co-director co named Tope, and, and my team was often all were many orphaned, and we started this project just hoping to get back into war-torn Nepal and, and make a change. And today I'm the mom of 56 adopted <laughs> kids. Long story short. By the way, this morning we're doing research, it was 45, so between <laughs> you got 11 more kids. No, every week, week the number changes. It's like, I, I, yeah. wow. I thought it was 54. So. Wow, wow. Um, well, every story starts with a love story, a, a story of... Um, of, of, of the kind of work that you're doing. Um, so would you just tell us a little more about that love? You said you fell in love with Hema, and that, that was the thread that kind of led to the weaving of this blanket. Well, those of us who work in Nepal, we all have a love story. It's yeah. you just fall in love with the people, mm -hmm. and it's a really special place. You cross into the border, you land, and you're just, like, taken away. And it's the mountains, and it's the natural beauty but it's really the people and the children. And yeah, for me, it was seeing this little girl and seeing myself. Mm. And, um, you know, just locking eyes with this other human being that was born under completely different circumstances, kids who lost their parents, and seeing myself on the soccer field and going to my first dance and choosing who I got to date and marry. Um, and just, I think it was this, just moment of connection and, and love for the kids there. And that's what's kept me there this whole way through. It's definitely a love story. So, so some of us may not know why they were breaking rocks. What is it that these kids face um, that you are now in relationship with them to, to help uh, this community? Yeah, so this was in 2005. This was the Midwestern region of Nepal. Um, there was a civil war that had been ongoing. And I mean, beyond that, it's a landlocked, extremely remote Himalayan food deficit region um, where children and women struggle to have their most basic human needs and rights met. And um, 
yeah, so Breaking Rocks, it was a developing area in the Midwestern region. Breaking Rocks was just gravel for construction. It was a way to make money and income and make that dollar a day to survive. So going to school was like this distant wish and dream. These people were just trying to have their basic needs met. Beautiful. Um, okay, um, we're going to get to the subject of the the, the, the the conversation, which is how do we move into cultures like this without bringing the Western mindset of we are here to fix, etc., which you two do so beautifully and organically. But let's move from Mother Teresa for a moment to Gandhi. <laughs> I, I am balding. <laughs> um, ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and the Z Foundation and your love story with, uh, with Nepal yeah. as well. How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> yeah. My, my love story for Nepal began uh, 21 years ago when I, when I first went. I, my background was similar to Maggie's. My, my parents are here, and they didn't let me have a trampoline. Um, or a Nintendo, um, but it was growing up in New Hampshire, and we grew up there, and, and sort of my dad and I spent a lot of time in the woods and in the mountains, and like many of us here, I grew up with a connection to the natural world that really fueled me, and, and so then as I went through the process that we do as young Americans, I sort of found adventure and discovery, and when I was in college, um, I kind of had a, a similar epiphany where I was studying poetry and I had plans to go to Oxford and I wanted to, you know, wear tweed and be very poetic. And, and I realized that, you know, maybe, this, maybe I should try something different. And looking on the map, about as far from New Hampshire as you can get in the world is Nepal. And so I did a study abroad program in Nepal. I just sort of took a left turn and, and pursued my love of climbing. And that's why I went there. And then when I got to Nepal, what really struck me, my sort of Hema experience, was my host mother, um, like many people in Nepal do, carried goods around in the doko, in the, in the bamboo basket with the tumpline. And I saw that, and to me, when I was in college, I, was, I had studied a lot of um, Edward Sheriff Curtis, a, photograph, a photographer who took pictures of Native Americans um, in the late 1800s. And... There were images of um, Pueblo groups that were using the exact same tumpline and basket. And so to me, it was sort of this strange strange travel through time, but also travel through sort of place and connection. And so being, um, my love story started as many do with like a lot of hubris. And so being like 19, I was like, oh, I can do that. And so I went out and worked as a porter in eastern Nepal carrying rice around trying to think that I could be a part of their experience and I could understand it and, you know, and I can do it. And a lot of what I was drawn to climbing was also like, this is hardcore, this is manly. And when I went out and worked as a porter, I was completely humiliated. I was completely incapable. But my love story began, and I feel like my tale of a love story with Nepal is true love in the sense that as much as I've screwed up in Nepal, the country has always been forgiving. And, and so those porters that I walked with, I mean, I convinced this group of guys, this like white dude, you know, to walk with them and to try to like learn about their lives and so on and so forth. And they were, they were okay with it. And they taught me about how to, how to like adjust the tump line. And they taught me about how to pack my loads. And then we went back and met with their families and they bought me tea and, you know, taught me how to rip leaves off of trees and roll these like really rough cigarettes that I like pretended to smoke, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I, I realized then that um, that was the beginning of a 
of a long process of humility for me. Mm. Of, and that gets to kind of the idea of equity, but for the past 21 years in Nepal, basically that work led to me starting a nonprofit called Portage Progress that was looking at working rights for people in the expedition industry, mm -hmm. and especially for the porters and the Sherpas. That sort of led to um, working back in porter communities with the Z Foundation. And in 2006, after the conflict ended, um, basically our organizations merged. And so since then, with Z, we've been working in this cluster. Maggie's like way in western Nepal. We're way in eastern Nepal in a similarly remote area. And we have a model there where we work with about 40,000 people. And our model kind of came out of the lessons that I learned from the porters. That initial love story, which is, I really don't know what I'm doing. But I had access to resources and I had access to, I can take an idea or a dream of a community and turn it into that donor speak jargon that foundations like to hear, right? And so we've, I've sort of, Nepal has allowed me to be a facilitator. Um, and so I think today as we're all talking about equity, that is what Maggie and I are. We're talking about equity in Nepal, but there aren't any Nepalis here in this town. And so everything that we're saying is more or less approximate. But it's a story about, as it's happened with Z, about us being listeners, being learners, and having our own lives changed. And so that's my love story, is that there's so many different, you know, like, I get to tell so many stories of all the mistakes that I've made. And every time, my colleagues in Nepal, the community members, the people that we work with, have guided, you know, have, have allowed me to make those mistakes and allowed us to improve. So in a nutshell, what we do at Z is we work with any given community for about 10 years and we help that community come up with, we're kind of our staff on the ground, our facilitators, the communities come up with a 10 year vision. And that can be everything from, you know, clean drinking water for every household to safe schools for all of our kids to, you know, I've, I did some of the, sometimes the community is like, I was in Kathmandu and I ate this thing called a kiwi. I want to grow kiwis. Right. And so the communities come up with ideas and then we help facilitate their dreams. So our projects range everything from income generation and agriculture to parent teacher associations to building bridges to toilets, drinking water, the whole, the whole thing. And so it's this emergent learning process that again, um, blissfully keeps me out of it. And so that's the long story. Well, I relate to so much of that, um, especially the making mistakes part um, yeah. and, and, and the screwing up part um, and then listening. Humility is a superpower. And um, uh, I've, I'm in a community now where I have a love story. I fell in love with uh, – I, I taught a historical black college called the Moyne Owen, and I fell in love with some kids um, who are still sleeping, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it's hard to love. Uh, yeah. um, but I, they, because I, you know, I saw kids uh, who were in danger, the most dangerous zip code in America at the time that I started was one in nine would be subject to violence. I did something really big. Your lesson was do something small. Yeah. And that's, I'm learning that, um, that we put a huge climbing gym and bought a campus because we wanted that kids have a safe place to recreate. But all we learned is the same thing that you, you're learning, which is listen to the community. Just yeah. be a partner to the community and be in relationship with the community. So, um, I, yeah, and I, would, I have a question about that for both of you, really, because, um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting that you both began your journeys in Nepal when you were teenagers. Yeah. You were 19. And you, you began somewhere, and you know, I know, I don't know your story as well, Ben, but I know yours, Maggie, you began with Hema, who, by the way, those of you who have seen We Are Forbidden, one of the 
young women in our film is human. So now she's this teenager and amazing and in a movie. So, you know, this, this relationship has continued across the time. But so it began with, I want to help this kid. And then it became a children's home. And then now you've built this magnificent school. I want you to talk about the school, but I want you to talk about how you listen to the community. As Ben was saying, you know, you begin one place and then you listen and go to the next place. I want, I want to hear about that process for both of you. How did, how did you grow the work you're doing? Yeah, so for me, the thing about being young was that I was able to know that I didn't know the answers. I just knew that I was deeply moved and hurt and questioning my own existence and the state of the world. And so I think that place of curiosity and just asking questions um, was the first step, not coming in and saying, I can fix this. Like, I can keep going, keep going to school is going to fix everything. Um and then the second step was just working with the locals. And I have a co-founder. His name's Tope. Um, when he was one, he lost his dad in a very rural Himalayan village that takes it took seven days to walk to. When he was eight, he lost his sister. When he was nine, he lost his mom. When he was 11, he went to India to labor. And he's my co-founder. And he, like, the work was in him what it meant to be an orphan was within him. And he'd, he'd done this work. And at some point I created an Nepali board. I, you know, it went from me as this teenage girl to we as a community looking for solutions to a very, a series of very difficult problems in an impoverished community. And so it was just kind of stepping back. And then the other cool thing about development work which is this work that I love, is that there's a million books out there. There are people who have made mistakes, have gone into islands and put beehives in when beehives didn't exist. Like, it's, you can read. I went to the library and I spent months just absorbing it all and learning from the people who set out before me and learning from people like Ben. And um, we didn't have a blueprint for addressing extreme poverty 20 years ago, but today we do. We know what works. And these blueprints and these models exist. And I think what we need to do in the nonprofit and development world is work together and unite. And the problems are intense, but it's possible. Like world hunger has cut in half. Mm. In Nepal, 20 years ago, 20% of girls were enrolled in primary school. Today, it's like 95%. So what we're going to see in the next decade is a world where girls and women are educated, and that's because of the work of development and nonprofits and those of you who are philanthropic and you support this work, and it's because of humans joining together who care. So we can get really upset, but then you come to Mountain Film and you see the storytelling and you see all of us and we care and it's a good world and yeah so it's just about leveraging us we're conduits we're we're, we're not the voice and and your film was not about being the voice of our girls it was giving them a voice and handing over the platform to them and to tope and and to a community they know like the first mistake we made we we were doing a women's center and we were like let's teach these mothers about nutrition and then they were, we were like, in a survey, we asked, if you had a little extra pocket money, what's the first thing you would buy? And the answer was vegetables. They knew what to feed their children, their mothers. They, they just didn't have the pocket change to be able to buy the vegetables. So 
we were like, okay, Nick's the nutrition class. Let's get them access to some funds. Let's teach them how to weave and sew. And so it's just those moments. And we've, we've been in this work for a while now and it's learning and being humble, (laughs) messing up when you make a mistake. Mothering is a really easy way to do that. You make a lot of mistakes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I, I agree completely with what Ben's saying. Stepping back. So, Ben, we're yeah. going to uh, uh, have you speak to that question, Cheryl's question, but we're going to open it up to questions as well. Uh, and remember, uh, we're going to be exact about this because we want to res- be respectful to our time. Everybody's got to get to movies. We want you to phrase it in the form of a question. If it starts out with, I was born in, we, I will stop you. <laughs> okay? Thank you, Tom. Um, I mean, there's so many ways to answer that question because it's so multi-layered. And... You know, those, those answers for me personally, too, keep emerging. But I think some of the similarities to what Maggie was saying is the, the crucial piece about actually sort of learning and being effective in Nepal is, is finding those mentors and those teachers and those individuals on the ground. And for me, it was that initial group of porters that I walked with. And then as Z started to grow and as my porter's progress started to grow, I had a number of colleagues, um, sort of my own sort of series of co-founders, uh, one woman in particular, Ang Chopa, who's sort of my like development soulmate. And as much as like, I think for me, like my story being like, yeah, 20 year old male, like I really thought I could go out there and change everything. I think I needed that. I really wanted to rescue the borders and I thought my Nepali was awesome, you know, but, but for so long I would, the word for porter is, um, Ah, yeah, like I still can't even do the aspirated BH correctly, right? <laughs> but for like a long time, like six months, I kept using the word birani, which means sick, right? And so I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm helping the sick, you know? And, and, so, and, and so there was so many people, and Chopa included, would be like, you know, whisper the right word in my ear and that kind of stuff. And for me, the story with how we actually go about at Z facilitating that, you know, it's one of those questions where for us coming from, the West coming from a place of privilege is very easy. Even the most sort of Western centric development organizations say that have the same rhetoric that we do about everyone is trying to help is trying to put people, but to actually implement that it takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of thoughtfulness um, and it takes some, some technique, you know? And so for me, like, so I had this idea, I, I was trying to go out there and kind of be the Gandhi and all this stuff, but this was happening through the conflict. So I was based in Luplo, which is at the, the base of the Everest base camp trek. And this is where all the porters um, from Eastern Nepal would go there looking for work. And we got a small, I got a small grant to focus on child labor, to keep children out of the porting industry. And I started, like Maggie, asking porters, well, hey, I've got this funds. What should we do with it? And the porters started saying, well, we need scholarships. We need schools. But the problem was, as an American... All the areas where the porters lived, these were villages where the Maoist rebels were based. So as an American, I couldn't go out there. And so I was sort of forced to take, I also don't have a formal training in development, but I read all the same books that Maggie did. And so I was forced to take these lessons that I was learning in books and use my pigeon in Nepali to teach porters how to go out into their communities and do an assessment. And one of the most important and powerful tools that I learned with that is and we, we use appreciative approaches in Nepal. So there's a way where you look at poverty, you look at a place like Nepal, and you say, God, there's so much wrong with this. The government's bad, pollution kind of is terrible, there's no roads. And that becomes the discourse that perpetuates poverty. 
But instead at Z, what we do is we started going to Porter's to be like, okay, go back to your community and come back with the 10 things you're the most proud of about your village and your 10 biggest dreams. Think about what you're proud of and think about where you can go. Supporters would do that and they'd come back with a list of projects they wanted to do. Then we'd teach them how to make budgets. But the first column of the budget is, what are the things your community has to contribute and what do you need? So they're like, well, we've got rocks, we've got labor, but we don't have roofington to build our school. So then that initial funding for child porters went into the roofington and we basically, like, I had to, this was funding from the U.S. government. I had to sneak around. And so we were, like, giving orders cash to go back and buy the Roofington and build this stuff. Um, because, again, as foreigners, we couldn't do it. But the porters kept their receipts. We gave them disposable cameras. They took pictures of the progress. And the whole time, our donors didn't know any different. They thought we were out there. And that lesson that I physically couldn't go out and be the savior is what taught me how to become a facilitator and how to stay out of the way. And our model has grown based upon that. And and so that was an important lesson for me at an important time. Beautiful. You, you have a, we'll, we'll, I'll see if the questions come, but you have a really beautiful way of, uh, he doesn't traditionally bring Western people for the volunteer week. Yes. Just quickly tell about that, and then your hands go up, please, we'll take your questions. Yeah, well, our focus at Zenot, so in Nepal we have, um, right now we're up to 27 staff members, and I'm the only um, I'm the only foreigner. And so our whole focus is, again, like as I mentioned, the first column of the budget is what can the communities contribute? What are the communities good at? What are their dreams? And so we get requests all the time of people who want to come out, and they want to paint a school, they want to do something. But that actually what we've found is it disempowers the communities because they one thing that Nepalis have ready access to is really good labor. Yeah, and they're they're super hard workers, and so why do we need to enforce that? Um, and so what we find at Z is by giving communities an opportunity to choose the projects, to opt in, it's something they're passionate about. We see about fourteen to fifteen thousand days of labor contributed by our communities every year. And the thing that I'm most proud of at Z is when you value that at local rates, like six dollars a day. Our single largest donor group are the communities themselves, and so we've tried to structure the organization so that we're primarily accountable to the communities, like what we're doing, is it valuable to them or not? And then we're also accountable to donors here, but our main focus is that. And so we've that's why we strayed away from the donors, from the volunteer experience, because we have 15,000 community volunteers every year. And so like, we're, we're cool without the group of American you know, high school kids. Um, <laughs> but the cool thing that you do also is that you will bring some people over and then right. they experience yeah. the Nepalese, not enough yep. volunteer. We're here to help you. Yep. We're here to know you. Yep. We're here to be in relationship with you. Mm -hmm. And that leads to long-term relationships yeah. and they come back for years, you say. Yeah. And one thing that we've done that's been really powerful is when we do have groups of donors that come out to Nepal, one of the things that I've done is, is you know, you, you can create fundraising structure. A group of donors raises a certain amount of money. All we do then is we put them in touch as they travel through our communities. All of our areas up until last year were roadless. Now the roads are there. Totally different change. Totally different coffee talk about what the future of Nepal is going to be like. But we put these groups of trekkers in touch with the community members. And the community is like, hey, here's four projects we want. And... The, and then the donors themselves can communicate and choose which projects they want to fund because they have a personal connection. Right. All right, questions, people. Yes, sir, your hand went up first. Uh, I was really curious about what you're talking about, where the money is. I'm curious where the money started from in each of your projects and how it evolved. We all heard that where the money start from and how it evolved. 
So for me, on that cul-de-sac, I was a babysitter. Um, I had $5,000 of babysitting money saved up. And um, that's all I had, no college fund, no nothing. Um, and so I called up my parents in a rickety phone booth. And I said, can you wire me my $5,000 of babysitting money? Because there was a little piece of land for sale. And um, after a very long conversation, <laughs> this is like post gap year, turned into a gap life. <laughs> it was not a year off, it was a year on, as the gap year community likes to say. Um, but yeah, they sent over that initial savings, and then this home started going in, and this, just locals were digging. We eventually, that babysitting money ran out. I went back and thought I could babysit a little bit more. Um, and then ultimately the money ran out. I had to get a septic tank and we couldn't, I just couldn't hustle anymore. Dog sitting, cat sitting, plant sitting. And um, I did a garage sale and <laughs> collected my neighbor's junk and did a cupcake sale. And, and then slowly um, started registering the 501 non nonprofit. It's linked now. It's the foundation. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. How many years into it when you actually became an official nonprofit? Yeah. So that whole writing up the bylaws. First, we registered um, the Poly NGO, then INGO, um, which is like a nonprofit in these countries, and then uh, we registered Blink now in 2006. So just a year. It took us about a year. And then did you do like the endless slideshows? Oh, yeah, then you go back to your high school and you talk, yeah. and then there's this magazine called Cosmo Girl, and, <laughs> and they were like, submit a picture of yourself and how you're changing the world, and my friend submitted my photo, and I got a call, I was in Nepal, and we had nothing, like, I didn't know how we were going to make it the next month, we were running out of space, and 60 kids in school, and... I get a call from New York City, and it's this girl named Rachel, and she's like, I have really good news for you. Um, you just won $20,000. You're Cosmo Girl of the Year. <laughs> and in my head, I'm just like, $20,000? $20,000? Like, I'm going to build more bedrooms. We can pay our electricity bill. We can get a solar panel. And then she goes, it gets even better. And I'm like, what? better than $20,000? And she goes, we're going to whisk you away to New York City for Maybelline Makeover. <laughs> sure enough, like, Frederick Fukai is doing my hair and I have place and I, and I have eyelashes. <laughs> and um, then it became glamour and then I was on the back of the Doritos bag. Full <laughs> ranch flavor. <laughs> I sold my soul to Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> Desperate times. <laughs> did, you get, did you get paid for the Doritos thing? Yeah, so that was a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, we built a school out of yeah, bamboo. So now we're going to teach you about nutrition. When <laughs> <laughs> my kids were at Maggie's school, the the colleagues were asking them. Like, who are the famous people in America? And, you know, they were, you know, do you know who Justin Timberlake is? And they were asking, Justin Bieber was the thing. And then my kids were like, well, who are the famous people in Nepal? And they said, Maggie is our famous person. <laughs> <laughs> That's sweet. 
I didn't get on a Doritos bag. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, I was um, the villain in two Nepali movies. Oh. Uh, that's, that's my, my claim to fame. Um, I spent my whole life trying to be like a good foreigner in Nepal, and I got cast in a role where literally, back when I had hair, I had cornrows, and they magic markered all these tattoos into me, and my whole, like, I was this, like, villain who was, like, telling the polys how terrible they were. Like, it was so bad. It was awful. And there was a makeup scene. How, much, really how much did you get paid for that? Oh, nothing. <laughs> I was like, how bad could this be? And it was as bad as I thought. You, you clearly need Maggie's agents. Yeah, seriously. Um, my, yeah, so for me, you know, so while, when Maggie was babysitting, um, you know, I, when I, after that first trip to Nepal, I came back to America and like, I had that moment in the grocery store where I'm like, why is there so much mustard? Like what? Like so many different types of mustard, you know? And, and I remember my poor parents are here. Um, you know, when I got off the airplane, we went out to like, we went out to dinner and we had, went to an Italian restaurant or something, you know, and it was like. I was like, I could eat for a month on this. You know, <laughs> get that righteousness. And so I was, I wasn't, I was not interested in finishing college, and I just wanted to go back. And God bless my parents; they were like, No, you're, you're definitely going to finish college. And so I did. Went back to Nepal. I sold my car. All my money ran out, and I needed a job that I could take a job on the contingency that as soon as I made enough money to go back to Nepal and had a little bit of money to do something important, I was going to leave. And there was a dairy farm uh, in Maine near where I went to college that was hiring. So I started milking cows. And so I milked cows like 4 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then I'd fundraise and do all my work during, during the day. And then I'd milk cows from 4 p.m. to 11 p.m. Go to bed, wake up, and do it again the next day. Until I had enough money. And then I got on a plane, went to Nepal. Um, everybody... Yeah, that was a different era. Um, but everyone, like, I'd be on the plane, like, still wearing my, like, farm clothes, and everyone's kind of like, oh, like <laughs> yeah, they'd walk down the aisle with the little sprayers. Um, <laughs> I cleaned up now. But um, but that was that was my, you know, and so for many years I did that. And um, I actually, you know, interestingly, you know, my work on the dairy farm ended up, I ran a small, like, sustainable forestry business in Maine. And just tried to do anything I could. And I was trying to use my body, I think, to be able to just get enough money that I could get back to Nepal. And eventually for us, same thing. It was just nickel and diming. And then suddenly we had enough money to hire a couple staff members. And then that just kind of grew organically from there. So. Okay. Thank you for the question. Uh, yeah, that was it. Was there ever a time in this journey to where you guys are now you came up against a huge hurdle or a moment where you were like, this is it? Gonna work like I quit now, and, and how did you get past that? Because obviously you're here now. Mm -hmm. I had like three of those. The question is, were there any <laughs> <laughs> the, the question is, were there any times that they they hit a barrier that they were like, I give up, I have to quit? Yeah, I mean, it's so so often. It I think one of the difficult things about and I'm not I'm not playing my fiddle here, but it, one of the things that I'm sure is a stressor for Maggie as well is that. We are constantly, and I'm speaking for you, correct me if I'm wrong, but we are constantly insecure about our roles. We are constantly unsure if what we're doing is good or not. And as amazing as Maggie's work is, we've got 56 kids who are growing up and becoming wonderful. I'm sure you still feel like, well, maybe this would have happened if I wasn't there, right? Like, and so for me too, it's like we've built 40 schools, you know, we've 
3,000 farmers in our programs, and they're all doubled their incomes. We've reduced diarrheal disease by 50%. But there's still a part of me that's like, God, did I? So that insecurity is constant. So this is a very hard question to answer because I don't know how much of those challenges are internal or external. Um, big ones for us at, at Z Importers Progress has sort of been the, the moment when the funding runs out and you've got staff to pay and project commitments to make and suddenly the check comes through the door. You know, that's happened many times. Um, for us, big challenges, um, you know, the earthquake in 2015, you know, was, that, you know, that's, that's a whole other issue. And I was also wrestling with our own sort of trauma going through that experience and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then, you know, now that I've you know, been in Nepal for 20 years, you know, we're now going through the challenges where, like, we lost a staff member this year. And, you know, very, very close staff member. And we, we lost him to suicide. And so suddenly we're a really tight family. And I've had to, I'm in this role now where I have to try to, like, guide our staff through a grieving process that's across culture. And my Nepal is good enough now that they assume I understand the cultural rules, and I don't. And that always, you know, and so those kind of things are just a constant, <clears throat> constant part that are, it's so multifaceted. I don't know, Maggie, do you have any? Um, oh, just uh, so many moments of crying in my pillow and uh, so much tragic, tragic loss and personal loss. And um, yeah, I could go on and on. And yeah, questioning, there's, there's 60 to 80 million orphan children around the world still. Like, we're sitting in Telluride mm-hmm. talking about this. <laughs> We saw a film yesterday that made me for some that made me want to call into fetal position and just um, I, I love my children so much. I love them to pieces. And, and um, I have five hundred, but there's gosh, there's so many more and then and then the problem and the issues are so big that you're just like, does it even matter? And you have those moments yeah. like you said of just questioning like questioning everything and and yet it does matter mm. and we're here in Telluride because it matters mm. and because we care and we believe that change is possible and I think at night when I'm in those moments and like why am I even here I want to give up and um, it's love that carries me through um, just deep deep love and also the belief and the knowing in my heart and there's this moment that I have a vision of me in my old age and I'm wrinkly and I have gray hair and I'm on a rocking chair surrounded by my children and at this rate I'm going to have like a million grandchildren (laughs) (laughs) and I want them to say grandma grandma is it really true that once there was poverty in the world and there was hunger and there was war and there was violence and I'm going to Look at their history books and say, "Yeah, but we did it. Like it, that was back in the year 2000, and we've come so far. And I, I, I really want us all today, and that's why we're here, right? We believe in this better, more peaceful, more loving world, and it's totally possible. And in those moments where you're questioning, and we do we all question, like, why are we here? What are we doing?" It's just, you have to go to that deep place of love and say, I matter, I have a purpose here, no matter what it is, and that we're working for a better world where children are 
children are cared for and loved and where we're all connected mm. no matter where we live or where we're born or who we are and um and yeah i feel that energy here and i feel it at this festival thank you for having me cheryl and brian and i feel it in my kids and in you and like let's just hold on to that for the whole next couple of days until we live <laughs> So I know what to do now. I'm passing the collection plate. <laughs> so let's go. Um, I mean, we will find out how we can support your organization. I think we have time for one or two more questions. We'll get you out early to your film. Yes, Jackie, and then we'll go back here to you, sir. Jackie, you go ahead. This is actually for Brian. So similarly to their hurdles, as a white male filmmaker going in to tell a story about teenage menstruating banished girls. <laughs> what, I mean, I know you had Charles tell obviously, but what was your biggest challenge, really? How did you authentically... You were authentically able to tell that story. Sure, I'm going to repeat that question real quick. Oh, yeah, the question is how did we, and especially this white dude, go in and make a, <laughs> a movie about menstruating teenage New Holland girls who were being banished from their homes? Well, I sat the girls down and I said, Let me tell you about menstruation. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl and I listening to the girls, and they decided the topic, and then we wanted them to be uh, in control of the story, and so we did a lot of uh, writing prompts where they would uh, share their stories, and from that we made the script. Yeah, it, it just felt that we had to, that we were only the conduit to amplify their voices, and and I think that that listening thing was the deal. I mean, we didn't say, well, what are the problems you're facing? We sat down and started talking to them the first time we visited the hall, and they just, they really actually started weeping. Uh, there were these two, two young women who just, I was very surprised, started crying, and, I, and, and they were telling us about this thing called Taupity, which we had never heard of. And um, it felt like they were asking us to use the power we have, the privilege we have, the access we have to tell this story to a larger audience. And so, but we, we were really just the conduits. We, we asked, you know, they were, they wrote every word of that, that script and they're everywhere. The film is them, not us. Yeah, the genius of the film is they got out of the way and it's all the girls. And it's yeah. a powerful short film because of that. I mean, our approach was basically to make ourselves small so the story could be big. Yeah, yeah. beautifully done. Yes, sir. <laughs> what advice and guidance would you provide for a young person that wants to become part of this loving world that you speak of? Making a change. I, th I think about that a lot. Um, Let me repeat the question. Yeah. What advice would you provide for a young person who wants to participate, become a part of, contribute to this loving world that you two are helping to build? I think the the advice that I would give uh, is if you if you want to change the world, you have to put yourself in a position to be changed. And if you want to help others, you have to first be helped yourself. Can we and stop right there? For yeah, that was, so that was like the great quotes. Yeah, this is what Oprah calls an aha moment. <laughs> That's right. You have to be what, speaking of Oprah. Speaking of Oprah. Speaking of Oprah. Speaking of Oprah. Well, we will. They know, right? You know? Oh. You don't know? Um, nothing. There's nothing to tell. Okay. Um, we'll tell you in a second. 
Um, <laughs> please say that again because it is such a beautiful moment. It is very profound and. I'll fucking please. remember it. Um, I'll remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you if you want to change the world, you have to put yourself in a position of being changed first. And if you want to help others, you have to you have to first allow yourself to be helped. And that helps you you understand what you, that gives you that humility, you know. And that's how you learn how to listen. And if you want to, especially in a place like Nepal or anywhere, I think it, this applies to our relationships and things here, but. If you go into something and you know the answer, it's, you know, it's never going to work. But if you go into some, something and say, you know, to someone who's very different from you or, you know, go, Maggie, Maggie, change my life. Then you start a real, honest, and genuine exchange. And that's how things change. It doesn't happen through hubris or ideas or any of that. It's all about those kind of things. Thank you. And, and, yeah, you don't need to go 8,000 miles away to the other side of the Earth. The sad thing about our Earth is that there's so much to do. And I think start with that seed inside of you. I think for some of us, it's, yeah, nature, the environment, whales. But, I mean, I'm sure we're all just, like, the bees. There's so many things to care about, to be passionate about. Film, the arts, Memphis, like... Find your thing, like find that spark, um, telling stories and amplifying voices. There is unlimited things to become a part of and to hold on to. And, and, and yeah, and then be ready to change, be ready to listen, be ready to read, and, and go from there. Believe that it's possible. Beautiful. Um, oh, do you want me to say something? Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, yeah, the, the fine. I, I, the, that special guest in the fall out of my chair. Um, you know, I, we, I we did fall out of my chair. We didn't announce. We didn't announce who the special guest was ahead of the festival because we don't want people to, um, you know, just get a ticket to the festival to see that special guest because we wanted to just be like an event. Um, so tonight at the Palm, I'm going to interview Oprah on stage. Oh. <laughs> and you're into hearing about what she has to say about everything. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, 6 o'clock at the yeah. Palm, um, or uh, maybe 1 o'clock at the Palm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's say there's been no announcement for the, from the whole festival that this is happening. Like, it's just sort of word of mouth. It's, yeah, I mean, like I said, we were just in this pickle. We were like, you know, if you say that, like, you know, when, yeah. when I asked yeah. her months ago, and she said yes. It was like, oh, let's, we didn't want it to, you know, be this bring all of this outside stuff coming in, you know, so, but once the festival started, it's like, it's not a secret, it's just, uh, now, you know, you know, whispering your friends' ears if they, if they are into, you know, um, coming tonight. Yeah, I think the queue might be kind of big. Um, how many people fit in the hall? 600. Oh, good, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say go to a movie there and then stay in the bathroom. We've all tried that. Okay, well, I was just told we have about now about eight more minutes, but we do want to let people go to films early, so so we should let this end this. Can I finish with a... Yes, please. I'm going to finish with sort of a love story. So... Two days. So Maggie and I have never met each other before Mountain Film. And we've all, we've like orbited, it's this weird thing about Nepal too. Well, obviously you're like way in Western Nepal, I'm way in Eastern Nepal. And, um, but so this is just part of that Mountain Film magic where a couple days ago I was picking up my swag in um, Bootleggers and 
someone was like, oh, hey, where are you from? And I'm like, that's kind of a long story. Um, I spend most of my time in Kathmandu, and I hear behind me, like I hear the North Face Down jackets like bustling, and someone turning around. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she's like, you live in Kathmandu? And I turn around, and there's Maggie doing. And, and I just want to also just like thank Mountain Film as well for making yeah. a connection that actually we could never get our acts together. We were too busy in Kathmandu. Um, and that kind of en energy and that kind of synchronicity and so on and so forth is really a part of the power and the magic here. So I just wanted to thank Mountain Film, thank all of you. Well, yeah. we, would, we would like to, uh, uh, we're going to close this with two things. We would like to thank you and you guys, even though they're so gracious that they wanted to step out of the way so you could tell your stories. So let's thank them for the amazing history. <laughs> This is going to be a podcast, thank God. Uh, Jade and Mercedes, they have a, a show called The Magic Hour. We captured this incredible energy if you want to hear it. So thank you guys for being here. Um, you, you've given us a great sort of uh, North Star. Like, let's go change ourselves as we, let's open ourselves up to being wrong, to making a mistake, to thinking we knew something, but having a film tell us maybe there's something more to learn. So let's proceed with humility, grace, and let's go get a car from Oprah. <laughs> Wait, one, one last thing. Maggie, if I want to contribute to your organization, how should I do it? Yes, great uh, idea. So you can follow us, uh, the Blink Now Foundation. We're all over social media. Um, yeah, and how about you, the private partner of Mountain Film? Well, um, <laughs> you, can, or you can just, you know, Stuff money into my pockets. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we at Z we have a little table set up at Fakaya, which is sort of on the main drag there on the left hand side of the road if you're heading that way. Um, so you can go in there and meet our Z staff, or you can just go to dzi.org, and our website will tell you everything you need to know. Thanks. It's the magic hour, Mercedes and Jay.